0: I'd never lost a night of sleep before Sarah, but since, yes, there have been times where it's been difficult because of the the weight of the responsibility and the complexity of the problems and whether we can actually crack it or not. It was much harder than anything I'd ever done before. And yes, frontline clinical practice as a doctor is difficult. You are dealing with life and death, but for, for some reason, this was just much more challenging.
1: That's Dr. Ben Marathapu, the CEO and co-founder of Sarah, a home healthcare company where you can book your care online. In just over 6 years, Sarah has established itself as one of the biggest providers of healthcare at home in the UK, as well as one of the fastest-growing companies in Europe. The care sector and healthcare in general were in a state of crisis even before the pandemic. Normally, if a sector needs change, entrepreneurs step in, disrupting the norm. But doing this in the care sector in the UK is notoriously difficult, even for well-funded companies. Ben is well aware of the issues, having worked in A&E and then spending three years advising the CEO of NHS England. What's impressive about Ben and his approach to Sarah is that he's not just jumping on the hot medtech trends, and that's allowed him to avoid the implosion in healthcare that has seen once-lauded startups fall. That takes a lot of resilience, and conviction. He is the first person from British healthcare to ever be included in Forbes' 30 Under 30. Sarah currently makes almost 50,000 visits a day to people's homes in the UK. That's the equivalent capacity of around 50 hospitals. After launching in 2016, they've raised over $400 million and are generating over £250 million of annualised revenue. They've scaled, expanding to Germany, where they're growing over 100% year on year. What is it like to scale at that speed with no experience ever managing anyone before? Ben had to learn some key lessons fast, and he is brutally honest about the toll it's taken on him. This is Secret Leaders from Kindling Media. I'm your host, Dan Murray-Surter. Before Ben had any real idea what he wanted to do or be, something happened to him that played a key role in his decision to become a doctor.
0: My father passed away when I was 12. Uh, and that was a really difficult experience. Um, he had a heart attack. It was pretty out of the blue. And then I remember coming home one day and my sister told me that we had to go to a hospital and that my mum was already there. And uh, I remember seeing my father in the hospital bed and um, you know he was unconscious. And so uh, I didn't actually get a chance to speak to him after that. We uh, spoke that morning um, before I went to school. Um, but it was it was a difficult experience, and I think um, my mother having to take the reins of the full family, me also needing to grow up a bit faster than I would have had to otherwise, it was a it was a challenging experience. I think ultimately it's made me more resilient. Uh, it's it's strengthened my character, but yeah, it was definitely difficult.
1: You use the word resilience, and I think it's an interesting one because I uh, I also had my father pass away in my early twenties. So you know, it was uh, still formative years, but you know, you can't compare that to a twelve year old. Absolutely, in a very odd way, it's the worst thing that's ever happened to me, and in a very odd way, it was also the you know my biggest growth opportunities came from it. And I do find it really interesting, right, because you wouldn't ever encourage someone to go through the experience of a loved one dying, obviously, as a growth opportunity. But I really related to you when you said that about resilience, right? And, you know, if there's ever a crossover for the need of resilience, it's working within the NHS and being an entrepreneur. I mean, that's basically the two, (laughs) probably two of the top 10 anyway, most intense opportunities and career choices to need resilience. So what was it about the experience that you think made you more resilient?
0: Yeah, I think, so with my father passing away at a young age, I mean, it resulted, there was what happened in the short term and the longer term. I think in the short term, I did change my behaviour quite a lot. Before that, I was so rebellious at school. I was the type of kid who teachers would call up uh, my mum or dad and say, you know, this is a real problem and my parents were pretty concerned about uh, how I was doing and my grades and so on. And it switched very quickly to me becoming a studious, more disciplined and getting my act together. And I think just because I saw the impact on my mother and that was frankly the really wrong, it was a wrong time for me to be creating issues for her. And it was time to probably step up and try and be a better son and a better student at school. Um, that really focused me to sharpen my thinking, get my act together, um, and be a better uh, student in school or better pupil. Um, That's what happened in the short term. I think in the long term, um, it took me time to really understand the consequence and impact of my father not being there. And it's something that even to this day, I still will reflect on. Um, And it could be small things like, going to a sports event and everyone else having their dad's turn up and me not, or kind of, you know, spending the weekend or a uh, Saturday at my mate's house. And, uh, you know his dad giving me a hug before we head off small things like that to areas of my life where having the guidance around decisions would have been really helpful. And that actually links to resilient because you have to be a bit more autonomous. You have to weather some of those st- storms by, Um, yourself. And just going through that phase of difficulty and emotionally dealing and coping with it um, made me ultimately a stronger person. And I think those events can either um, make you more resilient or they can actually um, chronically perhaps weaken you. And it's uh, there are a number of factors which determine how you will respond. But for me, it did make me um, a more resilient person. I think, as you've said, it's uh, it's something that's important to being an entrepreneur because you, you go through many challenges as an entrepreneur, you have to solve many problems on a daily basis and resilience is key to being able to do that.
1: Yeah. You become a victim to it or you create it as a big opportunity.
0: Yes, exactly.
1: And do you think that deciding to study medicine was uh, based on obviously your father dying when you were younger? Is that a driver or is it something you always wanted to do?
0: That was definitely a driver. I think seeing the influence that people in uh, hospitals and in the NHS have at the most intimate, vulnerable moments of our life, and how that can either go, they can put you at ease during the most troubling of times and make you feel assured that you'll be able to get through it, which which was my experience, all the way on the opposite end where actually sometimes healthcare isn't great, those ends of the spectrum really wanted me to try and get involved in healthcare and make it better. By the way, even at medical school, I always had entrepreneurial ambitions. I was switching between, do I want to do this or do I want to study finance or economics? Uh, In medical school, I even interned at investment banks during the economic crisis and it gave me flavors of that. Um, But it was when I spent time in the US and the US health system that I caught the entrepreneurial bug before coming back to the UK and practicing as a doctor. When I was a doctor working in the NHS, what um, I was impressed by is the amount of goodwill. People really invest so much of their personal time, effort and energy to ensure patients are looked after. They always put in extra time. Uh, They're always going above and beyond. And it is inspirational. There are daily acts of heroism um, in the hospital I was Uh, working in but across the country as well Uh, and that's amazing. The challenges though are the NHS at that point, so this is going back to 2013, had already been through a few years of funding challenges because we were coming out of the economic crisis and that was coupled with more demand for services than ever before given the aging population with more long-term conditions. That was starting to manifest itself, the system was creaking Waiting times were getting longer and longer. The facilities, the equipment we had in hospital wards was very limited. And um, it made it more and more difficult to practice. We also became more reliant on uh, interim staff or agency staff, which is not ideal because they'll only come in for one shift and then not the other, so you lose continuity of care. Um, And this also started to erode the culture. So I felt that a lot of my colleagues would find time to and would be complaining or having negative views on their working environment, and what it was like to practice, which is a real shame because you get these highly talented people, very motivated, working extremely hard, but that gets chipped away over time because of their working environment. Uh, so that was um, it was it was difficult to see that, um, if I'm honest. And a number of people who I study with at medical school since have left to do other things. Some are in completely different sectors. Even myself, I don't practice anymore. I'm still focused on healthcare, but I don't practice as a doctor. Um, I think I then moved from practicing to policy, where I had a national role advising the CEO of the NHS, Simon Stevens, and focusing on innovation technology. That gave me a completely different lens. Because I was a junior doctor, I'd never managed a single person. I'd never worked in a large organization before. Um, I was a bit of a bull in a china shop who didn't really know what I was doing, but I was given this chance to uh, spend some time influencing how policy was done in certain national decisions. And it was amazing to see there's just a completely different set of skills to operate in that environment. Medicine is very one-on-one. You look after the patient in front of you. Sometimes you're you're working in teams for sure, but there's no real team building uh, exercise or training you go through. You don't learn about influencing skills and so on. Whereas working in policy, it's all about how you interact with other people. It's all about trying to liaise with different stakeholders to get certain decisions done. And being able to learn from Simon, who is the CEO, who has phenomenal managerial and political skills, um, opened up a completely new part of my own skill set and my own experiences that definitely helped me subsequently as I became an entrepreneur and um, and it was still though challenging to see the amount of financial pressure at a national level the nhs was under the sheer amount of scrutiny um because we went through uh, the uh, election um which i think david cameron won at that point in time under the uh, conservative party a long time back now or feels like it um but the amount of the political influence on the nhs was also very potent i could see and Trying to decouple that from what is the best thing for patients. How do we focus on improving outcomes within a limited wallet size? Um, it's it, that's a difficult exercise, a, a difficult line to walk, I
1: think. It's a unusual path to go from you know being junior doctor etc to advising the CEO of the NHS. How did that happen?
0: So there was a um, a fellowship opportunity that. Simon posted uh, within his first couple of months of taking the role because he wanted people from the front line to spend time with him and to give him that in- insight. I think the challenge, one of the challenges with the NHS is there's so many layers between the patient and the CEO of the hospital, let alone the CEO of the NHS. And so getting some of that more gritty experience and insight from what's going on allows you to solve problems more effectively and to make sure that your views I'm much better grounded and so i applied for that and then received or, or was um given a place on on that i was one of two people two doctors to receive it and it was a yeah it was a life-changing experience because it massively accelerated my understanding of technology and its impact on the nhs because we had so many different organizations or knocking on our door google apple ibm Um, hundreds if not thousands of startups from across the world wanting to try and deploy their technologies in the NHS to benefit patients. And they'd normally come to our office to say, how do I do this? Or what type of partnership can I forge? And so uh, it was super valuable for understanding one, what technologies are out there two, which technologies actually make a difference for patients. Interestingly, there are over 300,000 apps on the Um, app store focus on health and wellness, but only a fraction of them really get adopted because only a fraction of them really make a difference. And then finally, which of these technologies actually get reimbursed? I think it's one thing to have really disruptive technology, but in healthcare, the challenging part is linking that technology to a business model. In almost every other industry, that link is much tighter. If you're setting up an e-commerce company or a fintech company, you can understand, okay, customers who are using my product are probably going to pay for it. In healthcare, it's not like that. Because the person who's receiving the product, which is the patient usually, is not paying for it in this health system or many others. And they're different from the person who is administering the product, which could be a doctor or a nurse, who are different from the policymakers who are involved in figuring out how it gets paid for, and who are in turn different to the people regulating that product. And so... That's one of the reasons why healthcare has been the slowest or one of the slowest sectors to adopt technology because you have all these stakeholders and aligning them is really challenging. Um, If you look at the iPhone or most smartphones, the person who's probably designing the latest product, I bet, uses that phone almost every day as well. They'll be the type of person who would buy that phone. Um, And that means that they can more easily say, okay, well, actually, if I were using this product, I'd want it to be like this, and this would make me want to buy it much more. the the circle for decision making is tighter. So you can move faster and you can disrupt and innovate more quickly. Here, it's more fragmented, which undoubtedly means it moves slower. And that's one of the reasons healthcare is in the position it's in when it comes to technology adoption. COVID actually, I might say, created the opposite effect. It forced the entire health system to radically change within a period of weeks, because if it didn't, um, it would have catastrophic effects for patients in the country and other countries as well. So suddenly the doors had to open for aligning these different stakeholders, for rolling out technologies that allowed patients to be looked after in their home, to have COVID be tracked, to have COVID tests be deployed to their home. All of that had to happen at record pace. And it was a complete gear change, which created that alignment and allowed technology now to be far more in use in that the NHS and other health systems than we saw three years ago. And so we saw more change, I would say in those first few months of COVID related to technology than we did in the past five years in the NHS.
1: How does technology change get quickly adopted then in a crisis? Is it a case of basically trying to, because you still have the same stakeholders, you still have the same egos? Is it literally a matter of saying, Listen, mate, You, you and you in these levels right here, we don't have time for this fuckery anymore. Got to drop the ego, got to get out of the decision stack. This is what needs to happen. These things have been thoroughly thought through. This is what technology needs to happen. You just got to step aside. Because I mean, how else are you going to align priorities and move things along at the pace it needs to, right? You just got to remove the people, I would assume.
0: Yeah, it definitely galvanized people around a specific cause, which was how do we tackle COVID and how do we look after people in the community with technology, I think the combination of one, urgency, two, the government realised they had to invest much more than they've ever done before uh, to avoid a catastrophe. And so they did invest. Um, Three, normally there's a lot of noise about what we should be doing, which conditions we should be prioritising, which technologies to consider, whether we should focus on people in the community or in hospitals or care homes. This cut through all of that. We knew what we had to focus on, and so um, the health system could move at lightning pace to make decisions. And I think there was that combination of central decision-making being far faster. That was combined with the fact that the doors and the restrictions around local decision-making were released. Local decision-makers in NHS hospitals or GP practices or elsewhere could now make much more flexible decisions around funding, around what they choose to do, around the technologies they adopt, whereas previously they'd have to get through so much more red tape to get something approved. Uh, that combination at a national and local level was what allowed far more radical adoption of technology. And COVID, you know, of course, had many negative and adverse consequences on our country and beyond, but there are learnings from it, which we do need to try and keep such as how do we disrupt and innovate at pace so that we can benefit people, as opposed to regressing back to where we were in 2019, which is a much slower health system that frankly sometimes is a turnoff to many entrepreneurs and larger technology companies as well.
1: During his time advising the CEO of NHS England, Ben co-founded the NHS Innovation Accelerator, which focuses on trying to scale the innovations available to nurses and doctors that hadn't actually been taken up across the whole country. But then, in 2015, he began to feel the NHS wasn't where he needed to be. What really struck me was that the biggest problem that the
0: NHS was facing was actually outside of the NHS. And that's how older people get looked after in the home. That's not a hospital. That's not a GP practice. It's how they get looked after in the home, which is more social care. And it was um, disappointing to see that the amount of innovation and investment that went into social care was a fraction. It was a drop in the ocean compared to what people were trying to do in hospitals. And yet, if you want to look after someone and if you really want to change the health system, the ambition isn't to make make a hospital more efficient and effective, it's actually to stop people going into hospital in the first place. And the only way you can do that is by focusing on the community. Even when it comes to data and using data to transform healthcare, getting data from hospitals and specialist services is helpful and it allows us to better understand how patients are doing, but really people spend 90 plus percent of their time outside of a hospital. And so we aren't able to access that information about how their health is changing, how are we really going to change their health and a health system. And so that started focusing me on care in the home and social care and trying to use that better. Simultaneously, I went through the experience of organizing care for my mother, who at the beginning of 2016 fractured her back and she needed support in the home. And I tried looking for a carer. I tried calling up different agencies, No one picked up the phone, let alone being able to even start care. And so in the end, my sister, um, aunt, and I ended up caring for my mum ourselves. And we went on a rotor. So even though I was working in the evenings and weekends and in the mornings, I would go and look after my mum, which was challenging, right? To try and juggle that and balance it, it wasn't easy. And I was hoping that there'd be just more support after someone is discharged from hospital to look after them, especially when it's someone who's almost 70 years old and is frail and has had a fracture. And then when I looked more closely at some of these home care businesses, because almost all of home care is delivered by small companies, um, the people in them were very well-intentioned. They wanted to go above and beyond for the people they were looking after, but they were limited by the tools of their organisation. And what do I mean by that? So sometimes people say, oh, look at the NHS and its hospitals. They've got pen and paper notes. Can you believe that? Um, For medical records. Some of the companies I saw They don't even have filing cabinets, so their pen and paper notes are in bin bags. That's how they're collecting and holding patient information, right? So imagine if you're someone trying to figure out which carer should visit which patient on that morning, you've got to go through the bin bags and look at the notes to figure out who the most appropriate person is. It's a mess. You can't run an organization like that. Every morning, some of the people in these companies who are organizing the operations will write a list on the whiteboard of all their patients and then a list of all the carers that they had available and they'd physically draw lines to connect them to see who needs to visit whom. So backwards, Um, some of these companies, they didn't even use the internet to manage their care. So the NHS, yes, it's backwards when it comes to technology, but social care is about 20 years behind the NHS. It's completely Stone Age. And so when I saw that through my personal experience, I thought better has to be possible just by taking technologies used in other parts of our lives, um, be it from how we manage our bank account to how we book our train tickets, just simple technologies, transferring it to the sector must be able to improve quality, must be able to improve the efficiency with which people are able to do their day-to-day jobs, and therefore their own satisfaction and well-being. And that was really the thinking behind Sarah. I saw some of the almost neglected the social care sector through my role in the NHS Innovation Accelerator. And then I also saw the need firsthand through the experience I went through with my mother. And then I decided to co-found Sarah. We launched six years ago. We're now doing uh, almost 250 million pounds of annualized revenues. We've also shown that we can use data to predict hospitalizations before they occur and reduce hospitalization rates by over 50%. So really keeping people well at home and taking pressures off the NHS.
1: Amazing. It's it's interesting because there's, there's quite a few companies that have tried to work in this sector. Um, I've come across like a handful over the last few years, and it's rare to find one that has quite as much traction as you guys. You know, we were talking before the interview, actually. I'd love, I'd love you to share this because it's something you've just shared there, which is um, we've got data to show that we're stopping people needing to be hospitalised. Tell me why that's important.
0: I think ever since we started, Sarah, I always wanted to use data to predict if people are becoming unwell at home, intervene early and keep them well there as opposed to going to hospital. And the biggest reason for this was actually my experience of working in A&E and as a junior doctor. And there used to be this gentleman who would come into hospital and to A&E every three weeks, typically with a urine infection. And we'd give him antibiotics, and then he'd go home, which is not ideal. Really, he shouldn't even need to come to any in the first place, but that's what happened. And we'd treat it, and he'd be okay. But on one instance, he um, came to hospital a bit later in the course of his infection than he normally does. And um, it was too late. We gave him the strongest antibiotics we had, uh, IV, and um, despite all of our efforts, he passed away tragically. And that was devastating for us, his family, and he was also receiving care at home. He had a carer who looked after him. And the worst part about it was if that was picked up just a day or two earlier in the home, the antibiotics could have saved his life. He could still be alive today. And something like a urine infection, it's it's got pretty predictable outcomes. The symptoms tend to be very common uh, and similar uh, from patient to patient. And the treatment also is quite um, clearly outlined. So by just equipping a carer better and making sure that they're able to spot these patterns and then do something about it, like get antibiotics from a pharmacist, that is the difference between spending five pounds on antibiotics, keeping that person healthy at home versus that person becoming unconscious needing an ambulance, going to A&E and probably having a one in five chance of, of dying. It's really life and death, not to mention being astronomically expensive for the health system. And so from the very beginning of Sarah, I really wanted us to focus on keeping people well at home and all of these conditions cropping up every day up and down the country where just small tweaks in how someone's doing can keep them well at home. I wanted us to focus on tackling that head on.
1: And how common a scenario is something like what you've just described?
0: So over half of attendances in A&E actually are um, avoidable, just to be clear. So everything we hear about in the newspapers about waiting lists, people having to queue out the door uh, up and down the country, over half of those people could have been treated at home or in a GP practices. They wouldn't need, need to be there. And that's massive. That is make or break for the health system. If we actually treated all the cases that could be treated in the community and in people's homes at home, we would say billions for the NHS, we'd eliminate so many of our waiting lists, we'd make our hospitals much more functional than they are now, but that isn't happening. And so we see some of the challenges uh, that are on the news almost daily.
1: And how is something like this funded? Because one of the things that you mentioned is You know, we'd say billions for the NHS, but obviously, you know, this is also like personal care at home. So is this more like if you can afford a service like Sarah, then what you're actually doing is technically the right thing, right? Which is you're taking the burden off the NHS because you are able to afford this at home and therefore it is an important thing. Whereas previously, obviously, the default is, well, I'll just go in the NHS and I'll do it that way anyway. And I'm asking for a personal point of view as well. My mum is currently recovering from um, a surgery. She has a care at home. Interestingly, though, her previous experience had been more what you were describing, which is when she needed a carer, a different person every day, a different person every time, which is, you know, I'm lucky enough to not have personally needed one. But having spoken to my mum through that experience, that's a very frustrating experience because you feel like you're always starting again every single day, like explaining what's wrong, why it's wrong And you expect more from them, but you also forget because you're short-tempered and not feeling well. um, But you also forget, obviously, that they're a human being and they don't have this information like turning up, right? They're just on a revolving door themselves every day. So, yeah, it's a very meandering way of asking, you know, how, how, like, who does pay for Sarah? Like, how does the model actually work?
0: So 96% or so of our revenues are from contracts that we have with the NHS or local government. So in the UK, about two thirds of all care is funded by the state, either through the NHS or local government. And it's funded through contracts that last several years. And you bid on the contract, you win it, and then you deliver the care services on their behalf. Uh, And almost all of those services are delivered by small businesses, mum and pop shops. They're very small. That's why technology can help, because you can achieve more scale and benefits come from that. Um, but that will typically pay us for the amount of care that we deliver. It won't pay us for um, preventing hospitalizations. We don't get any additional explicit payment for that. However, the fact that we're able to deliver much better outcomes than other players at scale means that our win rate for contracts is really high. Uh, we almost always, always win contracts when we bid on them and our renewal rate is 100%. So once we keep get these contracts, we keep them. And sometimes we're able to charge just a bit more than other providers for that additional service of keeping people well at home for longer. What I would say though, is that the UK, um, like some other countries already have, is moving to a position where budgets between hospitals and GPs and social care are getting merged and coming together. And the reason for that is it incentivizes people to look after and provide healthcare in a lower cost setting which undoubtedly is the hope. It also means that you can create incentives such as if someone is uh, kept at home and a hospitalisation is avoided, maybe there's a bonus payment that's due to the provider that it was able to achieve that because it's very expensive if someone goes to hospitals. And right now, hospitals sometimes even get fined if someone gets readmitted within a certain period of time. And so that incentive scheme is already actually up and running in certain parts of the US, Singapore, Spain, and I think the UK in due course will head in that direction because it will encourage us to reduce the cost of care, make it more sustainable and crucially help people be looked after in the community, which is where they want to be, rather than going to a hospital unnecessarily.
1: So $400 million or so in funding, is that right? About 10,000 employees across Europe and the UK and all in about six years. What the fuck is that like? That sounds like, honestly, if you weren't doing something good for the world, that sounds like an absolute nightmare that most sane people wouldn't actually want to experience, um, even if it sounds good. (laughs) Because you haven't just gone from doctor to CEO, you've actually gone from doctor to founder and CEO of, like you say, the most successful company in its whole category across Europe, which is lovely and all, but you seem very well measured and like you've still got your shit together somehow, despite doing all of that at such crazy growth. So how have you held it all together? What's it actually been like?
0: Yeah, I'm not sure my wife would agree with you, but that's a different story. <laughs>
1: no, she, she, she told us in advance. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thanks, Dan. Um, I think, what's it like? So yeah, I mean, before I started, Sarah, I'd never worked in a company. And even when I started and we were raising... Seed round. People would say, "What's the gross margin in the business?" I didn't even know what gross margin and EBITDA margin was. Right? I had to learn financial terminology, how to raise money. I'd never hired a person in my life. I'd never managed a person in my life either. So it was a really steep learning curve, and it was tough. Right? I mean, I've been during this journey, at Sarah, being pushed outside of my comfort zone continuously. But the problem is, or the the hardest part is that it's multiple dimensions at the same time, multiple learning curves at the same time. There's understanding financials, there's understanding culture and team building, there's understanding just how to build.
1: Well, yeah, how to execute, right? Because you guys don't have a lot of margin fairer either.
0: And then how to raise money, which there is skill and experience that um, comes to that. All of that hit me pretty much at the same time. And so it's difficult. The first few years at so. 2016 to maybe 2019, we grew, but we didn't grow really aggressively. And so it, it gave me a bit of breathing space to learn some of the other skills. And um, it was still tough. If you're dealing with large numbers of staff and customers and a product that is does move the needle on someone's quality of life. That's tough. right? especially if you're growing quickly, that is tough. And the fact that you're dealing with problems on almost daily basis that you've got to solve, 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 and you're always outside of your comfort zone if the company's growing rapidly. I would say that that's really challenging. Um, Yes, being a doctor is difficult, but in most instances, people are well-supported. So worse comes to worse. If you have a difficult situation as a junior doctor, you can go to your supervising colleague or the consultant, and they will provide you with a degree of support. When that support's not there, it's a different situation, it's much tougher, but most of the cases, it is there, and so you can find a way through it. After 2019, that's when we grew really fast. So we grew almost 100X in two and a half years, and that was just a different type of challenge to the stuff that I'd have to deal with. That was growing pains, building a culture with remote working as well, because it was during COVID, um, setting up processes, Uh, using technology, but not just our products, but even our back office systems, understanding which systems to use, making it stronger, learning from mistakes, because we scaled so fast, um, and we built a great team, a number of whom were my close friends, um, but not everyone can scale with the company at that rate. So their roles had to change. And some people didn't stay, or some people had to leave. That, um, that also was really difficult. And emotionally, it was difficult because you're fighting in the trenches with these people who are so close to you, right? You spend more time with them than you do almost with anyone else in your life. And for one reason or another, it's it's got to change. That's tough. And there's there's the other challenges, which are more kind of thinking through stuff. But emotionally, that was one of the most difficult things that I think I had to go through.
1: What toll did that take on you? Like, you know, I almost like you're alluding to... Having to let go of people who either were friends already or became friends, I think every entrepreneur listening, if you've hired well in the past and then things have changed because things have gone super well in the business or badly, everyone can relate to this. I'm hearing you and I'm relating to it strongly, right? I've had to let go of people that i I admire, I adore, I want to go for a drink in the pub with, but I always imagine they don't want to ever fucking go with, ever with me ever again after I've had to let them go it's 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 hard, right. So what, how did you find that whole experience for the first time? Cause I guess it's not like something you'll have experienced in the NHS at all.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, it was incredibly difficult. I think, uh, the first couple of times was really challenging and it took me months to actually move past it and to stop having to think about it regularly because they were really close to me and, um. But then I also, something that you don't ever get taught in the NHS, actually, is just how to work well with other people. At medical school, a lot of book work, and then a lot of clinical training around how to do procedures, or how to examine a patient, or to do a history. But there isn't a single point where they say, this is how a team functions really well. You're working in a team, whether it's an operating theatre or on the wards, and you should talk about norming, storming, or um, ways of working or roles and responsibilities so that you're more effective as team. It just doesn't happen. It's a complete blind spot. And so then when I was in Sarah, the first couple of years, um, unfortunately, that lack of experience did rub off on the organisation. And I was just going with kind of my my instinct or whatever I thought at that point in time was the right thing to do.
1: You mentioned the word blind spot earlier. Every entrepreneur will experience blind spots and actually, you know, your rate of learning and growth often comes from firstly, the, uh, I would say, humility to understand that you have blind spots in the first place, and then the speed at which you want them exposed so that you can be aware of them so that you can work on them. What are some of the most obvious blind spots that you've been uh, made aware of in either your style or your just understanding of how to execute well over the last couple of years?
0: I think that I'm pretty impatient and I need to be more patient. I think some founders in general are, but it's you've got to be really careful with that trait because it can ruffle a lot of feathers in a way that isn't great for um, being able to manage and lead people effectively. I think another blind spot has been in the early stages of the company, I was super hands-on, right? I did I, everything from kind of figuring out the office space and cleaning the office to... Uh, the latest processes and the, and the copy for the website through to how we're building our product. I was everywhere because we were so small and you had to be. But as the company grows and you bring more and more seasoned leaders who want the autonomy in the space, giving them that space has been something I've had to very actively learn. Um, I think the fact that I'm impatient and I like to execute quickly and I want to be hands-on and lean into some of the challenges doesn't necessarily... Complement leading a large or scale up with many people and seasoned leaders who want to be able to make their own decisions. There's that quote from Steve Jobs, which is if you, I think, well, I won't remember the quote or re- recite it specifically, but if you've got great people, you should really list, leave them to it.
1: H- hire smart people and get out of the way.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And I think to start with, I hired smart people and got in the way. And uh, it's, that has been, just related to my personality. I think that's also been a learning curve about when to get out of the way, even though you see a fire, letting other members of the team deal with it. Because it's a growth experience. And obviously, you've hired them for a reason. And they're much better than me in a number of things. So I should leave them to it, as opposed to getting in there, which has all sorts of knock on effects for the company and its culture.
1: And what's been your biggest challenge Like over the last few years, what would you say is the one that almost broke you?
0: I think it's that Sarah Sarah has several parts to it, right? It's not a dating app where we get a bunch of engineers in a room and product managers and we can launch something and it's pretty good to go. Here it's Care recruitment, training, logistics, regulatory compliance, contracts, acquiring companies, marketing, branding, product, data science, development. There's so many parts of the company that you have to bring together in a synchronous way for the model to execute. And if you don't synchronize it, if we're not recruiting enough carers, that has a negative consequence on the business. If we aren't strong enough with our financial processes Maybe it means people don't get paid on time, which they get really pissed off about. If we aren't accurate enough with our data science, the recommendations we're making to our carers also could be a bit off. All of it needs to be balanced. And that undoubtedly does not happen. So you need to strengthen different functions. And the one that's the weakest needs to be rebuilt and strengthened and uh, set up for success. I guess the challenge for me is that juggling act, but also when... There've been multiple divisions of the company, which have really had to um, be levelled up. Because if I think about it, a year and a half ago at Sarah, our senior leadership team was three people, including me. Right? It was our CTO, um, our chief commercial officer, and it was me. And all three of us were from a much more smaller stage background. Right? We'd never worked in a large organisation, let alone trying to run it. And that was when there was a massive gap between kind of our leadership capabilities, and the rate at which we'd grown. And undoubtedly, that means issues get bubbled up, and they all pinch me at the top. That was very, very stretching and difficult. And so finding the right people, hiring them and getting them in place to lead some of those key parts of the business um, made a massive impact on the company, but also just on my quality of life and well-being. As an illustration, a year and a half ago, our HR team, despite having thousands of staff, was me and a head of HR. So uh, we had to build that function, bring in a chief people officer, and make it so that it really scales with the company, as opposed to in a position where the size and scale completely um outbalances the capability we have in house
1: just like you know reflecting more on the on the sort of feedback element here what's some feedback that you've received from customers that's actually been quite disheartening and frustrating what's that actually been like when you're trying to do something good
0: so we deliver 50,000 visits a day to people up and down the country and so when you add that up across several years it's it's a large number and this is in person care right a carer going to someone's home helping them bathe, eat, take medications, and so on. It's not just food being delivered to their door, right? It is a very intimate product, and if the person doesn't turn up and they don't get their blood pressure meds that day, it can have huge consequences in the evening um, for their blood pressure and then turn them needing to go to a and I think um, a real challenge and reality check was probably in, towards the end of 2018, where we had grown quite effectively, and the economic side of the business seemed to be going well, and actually a lot of customer feedback was positive. but there was an instance where a carer didn't turn up to a person's home. I think they missed two visits, and that person had a fall, and they were just at home and then by the time someone did go in, they'd been on the floor, and they had to go to a hospital and then they got discharged weeks later, and um, but they weren't the same, right? Their, their health was not the same. They fractured uh, their hip. It was really difficult. And that was that was really challenging, right? I had the son of that person you know, on the phone, came to see me, talked to me. Oh, actually, I went to see him in, in his office. And he gave extremely strong negative feedback about how this could happen. And, um, you know, statistics are obviously when you're large, just that can, that may happen, but the consequence is massive. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about that for, for a long time um, and uh, it, def- it kept me up at night and, and so on. And eventually, yes, that person was got back to their normal health and um, their son understood the situation. And we also realized why the carer couldn't turn up because they had some, some personal circumstances with their child. But It showed me that even though we're growing, if we don't have the right processes in place for quality compliance and picking up issues like this or monitoring, that will make the scalability of our product very difficult. And so we had to completely overhaul what we do from a quality and compliance and monitoring point of view from that point. It was a tough learning experience. It made us better, but it was a big reality check, right? It's not just cool, we're scaling. Isn't this exciting? We've got a new marketing campaign on the tube or something like that. Great. You know, move fast, break things. No, what we're doing is extremely precious. Every single interaction makes a life-changing difference. We need to be damn sure that it goes well. And we have processes in place so that if someone doesn't turn up or something does go a bit sideways, we can dress it super fast.
1: Amazing. Ben, final question what is your advice for entrepreneurs that are looking to go on a journey in their business where they help people what is something that they need to know
0: so i'll i mean i'll probably give you two things if that's okay the first one is do not understate the power of your mission at Sarah, our mission really is the glue right every single person who joins joins for the mission Right. It doesn't matter what the job is, how capable they are, what they've done in the past. I mean, our CFO previously worked at an e-commerce company and before that was group finance director, Just Eat. And what he said yesterday, because we had a group call where we were celebrating some of the positive stories of the care that we delivered was, you know, my last company, we were just delivering goods to people's homes. And before that, it was food. This is completely different. When you hear these stories, even though it's tough and it's a really tough sector and it's winter, and there's been COVID, and there are strikes in the NHS. Despite all that, you recognise how amazing the work is that we do. And it's so fulfilling and motivating. And I wouldn't understate that, yes, it's great to build a prop tech company or fintech company, but the difference of being able to impact someone's life and impact society in a positive way is huge. And if you can get that win-win between having a successful company and making an impact, that's like gold us, I would say, for attracting talent, supporting it and creating a culture that's glued together because you've always got that North Star. It doesn't matter how challenging it is. The storms you are going to have to serve. You have that North Star to look forward to, to solve for, to optimize for the company and what you do is much bigger than yourself. It's almost like a movement and never underestimate how powerful that is. The other completely piece of advice that I'd give to a founder who's building a company like Sarah or even completely different is follow data and not hype. And the reason I say that is when I set up and co-founded Sarah, the hype then was telemedicine, right? Build a telemedicine company, loads of them are taking up, loads of them are getting funding. Now though, it's a real challenge because as a form of technology, it's, it's commoditized. And what's stopping a GP practice from using Skype to video call their patients? Nothing right? So those companies are in a completely different place. And it's really tough. And there isn't a clear business model. Whereas all the data showed me, as we talked about earlier, that the challenge, the area that's been neglected is social care. It's people being looked after at home. It's older people who can't even use technology, who use more healthcare than anyone else that we need to support. That's what all the data showed me. And since ever since, it's paid off on that thesis. And the decisions we've made, as opposed to going with the hype and the latest fad phase has been, okay, what is the data showing us? Use that as a, as a decision-making tool rather than the noise we're hearing in the background.
1: Dr. Ben Maruthapu, CEO and co-founder of Sarah. One of the many things that struck me in that interview was Ben's commitment to his customers. And I think that story he shared of going to actually see one of his customers personally is a great reminder for all founders that no matter how busy we are, we should never forget our customers. Making that effort is vital. Thanks for listening to this episode of Secret Leaders. I hope you enjoyed it. I've been your host, Dan Murray-Serta. This episode was produced by Ruth Edwards and brought together by our head of podcast, Will Stollerman. See you next week.